Hi, welcome to JTalks Live. I'm Kathy English, Chair of the Board of the Canadian Journalism Foundation. The CJF celebrates excellence in journalism. We run a number of programs, these JTalks, our awards and fellowships, and research and education initiatives. I'm really proud that even in the midst of a pandemic, we've been working to advance our mission of celebrating journalism that reflects and re represents the diversity of our communities. Our CJF Black Journalism Fellowship Program was established recently to amplify Black voices, improve coverage of Black issues in Canadian news, and cultivate future Black media leaders. We owe thanks to CBC Radio Canada and CTV News as our first partners, and we look, really look forward to announcing our first fellows this spring. Speaking of the spring, please save this date. Our CJF Awards virtual ceremony celebrating Champions of Truth takes place on June 9th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. We really hope you join us. It's going to be a terrific, terrific show. All of our work is possible with thanks to our many sponsors and to your generosity. We know it's really a tough time for many and we're very grateful for any donation to help support quality journalism. In the spirit of appreciation, I really want to thank today our JTalks Live sponsor, TD Bank Group, for making this series possible. Thanks also to in-kind supporters CPAC. If you'd like to tweet about this talk, the hashtag is JTalksLive. Our JTalks series explores pressing issues in journalism. Today, we focus on the political and racial issues inflamed by one John, Donald J. Trump, which President Joe Biden has to navigate, as does the media, which has been doing so for some time. I'm so pleased that joining us today is an all-star lineup of US journalists. Erin Haynes is a founding mother and editor-at-large for The 19th, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom covering the intersection of women, politics, and policy. Based in Philadelphia, Erin is also an MSNBC contributor. On a personal note, Erin did a seminar for the Reuters Journalism Fellowship Group I was part of at the University of Oxford last fall, and our all-female fellowship group was in awe. Erin, I think we all went away wanting to work with you and start our own female newsrooms with you. Thank you. Jamal Bowie is a columnist for the New York Times and a political analyst for CBS News based in Charlottesville, Virginia and Washington, DC. He covers campaigns, elections, national affairs and culture. Ested W. Herndon is a national political reporter for the New York Times based in New York City. He was previously a Washington-based political reporter and a City Hall reporter for the Boston Globe. Welcome to you all and thank you so much for joining us, for giving us your time and your insights. And now to our outstanding host, Anna Maria Tremonti, to lead this conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to JTalks and hello, Erin Estead and Jamel. Thank you for joining us today. Lots to ask you about and we want to really hear what you're thinking right now. You know, we talk about um, in this panel, we want to navigate race and politics in a post-Trump world, how, how that's done. But I'm wondering, is this a post-Trump world or is this a lingering Trump world? How would you define where we're at, Erin? Yeah, no, I think I think we are still uh, kind of dealing with um, the uh, 
the former president and, and, and what his post-presidency is, is going to look like. This is not somebody who, uh, like maybe his predecessors, you know, kind of defers to his successor and, and goes away. I mean, he will be speaking. Uh, he was invited to be the main speaker at, at the uh, Conservative Political Action Committee conference that's happening uh, in Orlando, Florida this weekend, right? And so uh, he continues to factor very much into our, our politics, into Republican politics. And, um, you know, as uh, the Republican Party is kind of uh, in disarray and trying to figure out its way forward uh, in the wake of, of, of President Trump's um, uh, tenure and, and everything that that has meant uh, for the party, uh, you know, whether uh, the future direction is, is Trumpism or Republicanism is still very much an open question for, for our politics and something that, that as a political journalism class, we are uh, very much still paying attention to and, and waiting to find out ourselves. And of course, uh, Donald Trump may not be in office, um, but the white supremacists that he enabled who have been so vocal are still very vocal. They are still there. Systemic racism, of course, is still systemic and entrenched. And so how do you, how do we cover the Biden administration at this point in time? Ested? Yeah, I mean, I think that those are kind of central questions. But I mean, if we believe that these issues are systemic, if we believe that they are um, uh, predated Trump, that they are ingrained into the American psyche, identity and culture, then the answer is no differently than we did under Donald Trump. Uh, we cover them with the same vigor, with the same lens, with the same uh, kind of uh, uh, sense of accountability and importance as there was uh, during that era. I think that sometimes there was there is a um, a, a kind of delusion to believe that white supremacy or the kind of things that Donald Trump so vocally uh, enabled uh, are, 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 um, were created in the last four to five years. Uh, certainly, we know that that is not true. And so I think from a reporting perspective, this is an opportunity to talk about the long arc of these issues, to talk about how they are entrenched in democratic politics as well as Republican politics, to, to, to make clear that these are things that are, um, are core to society uh, and American politics uh, and not just uh, written down to one singular individual. And so I think if, if, if there's anything, I think uh, our jobs become... Uh, more important to highlight this when it is not being spoon-fed from the highest office in the land, because the impacts, the harms, the trauma of those issues are are still continuing. And and so Jamel Bowie, um, how uh, you've written uh, about you know Biden's governance options, things like the filibuster, and looking at how he can use his governance to address some of this. Talk to us a little bit about the, the importance of the, the gears of government behind the scenes under somebody like Biden in terms of perhaps addressing some of this. Well, I think it gets to whether or not the Biden administration and really Democrats in Congress want to actually address it, right? The, the, the mechanisms as far as legis legislative mechanisms go are there. Uh, you know, you'd have you have to change the rules to make some things uh, happen. So, for example, the um, big voting rights bill that's in the House and the Senate, HR one, S one, uh, the For the People Act, probably can only be passed in a Senate where the filibuster is weakened or non-existent. But it's the bill is there. Everyone sort of knows what it would take to pass it. The Biden administration um, has nominated for its civil rights division in the Justice Department several very well regarded. 
uh, people who do great work on voting rights and, and protection of voting rights. And so it's a, it's a thing where, at least among Democrats, there is wide knowledge of what it takes. It's just a willingness to do it. And I think this gets to this question of, you know, Democrats ran last year uh, on you know, stopping systemic racism, uh, addressing uh, questions of racial inequality, uh, of equity, I think is the, the term many Democrats use. And so I think as far as political analysis goes, I think there has to be an eye towards sort of really interrogating and asking whether or not Democrats in Congress and, and the Biden administration are actually working to fulfill those promises and looking at how those promises may cross cut against parts of the democratic coalition, other priorities, looking at how priorities that we don't necessarily think of in terms of racial justice, like labor issues, um, like corporate power issues, whether or not that actions on those cut against, you know, a, a stated desire uh, for addressing systemic racism. So I think part of, you know, to, to get to this, to get to the, the larger question of like, how do you cover these issues in the context of a Biden administration? I think part of the answer is recognizing that we should not silo these issues to say criminal justice or, you know, a white supremacist or white nationalist movement, that you have to bring a lens of racial analysis to, again, questions of labor, questions of corporate power, questions of um, inequality and distribution. And um, you have to also take those questions outside of D.C. as well onto the um, to the state legislatures, um, to the municipalities and uh, even I mean, to the streets of of covering regular people. That's right. Yeah, I, these, you know, I think all of us, many of us focus on D.C., focus on Washington, just because of kind of the nature of covering national politics, but so much of the uh, progress and regress on these issues happens at the state level, happens at the local and the municipal level. Um, and that is as deserving of serious coverage and um, an investigation as anything else. So for example, right, there's one thing that has been um, positive to see is a good amount of coverage of the uh, unionizing drive in Birmingham, Alabama, with regards to an Amazon factory. And much of the coverage in that case doesn't deal with sort of these larger questions of inequality, racial and income. Um, and I think that that's the kind of lens looking at how this interacts on the on the lowest levels of government as well as the highest levels um, is valuable in general and certainly will be valuable going forward. Aaron, I was on the 19th website the other day just looking at um, the panel that, that you just shared where you're looking at the, the, the power and the politics of uh, black female politicians. And I was reminded of, of how many black women, first of all, are in governance in state and municipalities as well, but also in, in the power that we, you know, maybe in Canada, we don't hear enough about. And, uh, and in terms of the, the coverage of this, um, maybe speak to us a little bit about um, the importance of what black women are doing in politics right now. Yeah, well, uh, I appreciate the, the question, Anna Maria, and thank you for, for uh, shouting out uh, the 19th and, and our coverage. Uh, Listen, uh, I have been focused really on the past, uh, for the past several years on the issue of, of Black women's political leadership and, and what the future of that is, uh, not just 
in terms of, of elected officials, but those standing for office, as well as uh, Black women voters uh, and the Black women organizers who, who mobilized uh, Black voters in, in record numbers uh, in, this, in this last election, because many of them saw um, you know, this election is not only consequential, but existential in, in many ways uh, for, for, for them. So, um, you know, um, obviously Vice President Harris and, and her historic role as, as the first woman, the first person of color uh, to, to be the second most powerful person in the country, arguably the world, uh, is, is the most prominent example of that. But, but there are um, Black women uh, leading, uh, you know, as mayors of, of, of uh, you know, iconic American cities uh, that are standing for mayor uh, this year. There will be black women running for governor again, trying to break that barrier. There's never been a black woman elected governor uh, in America, uh, in America's history, but that could be something uh, that, that we might see uh, changing. But uh, black women continuing to be on the front lines, pushing back against voter suppression efforts that are happening at the state level uh, in legislatures across uh, this country right now. Stacey Abrams continuing uh, her fight against that, uh, but but also others kind of joining uh, and continuing uh, in, in in that fight in in Georgia and in others. I mean, other states where you're seeing uh, just dozens and dozens of pieces of legislation making their way through state legislatures even as we speak. Um, also, um, you know, um, the reality that uh, they're you know with with Vice President Harris's ascent to uh, to to her current role, uh, she. Uh, left the Senate and now there are no black women in the Senate. There have only been two black women in the Senate's 230-ish year history. And so what that looks like going forward, I mean, black women we know overperform politically at the polls and yet they are not getting the return on their investment as they see it, uh, you know, in, in uh, the upper chamber of, 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 um, of Congress. And so what could that look like going forward? You've got, um, you know, uh, white uh, Republicans uh, in places like Ohio uh, North Carolina, uh, Alabama, saying that they will not stand for re-election in 2022. Uh, and yet we know that uh, despite the fact that there's a critical mass of Black women uh, in the House, uh, you know, as Congresswomen, uh, that is not necessarily a pipeline as it would normally be uh, for, for white men uh, to, to run for Senate and, and win because the, the path to statewide to federal election uh, for Black women is, is fraught. And, and, and it is more than a notion uh, that a black woman, uh, you know, would be elected statewide, and so um, you've got folks like, um, you know, Terry Sewell, who says she's exploring a run in Alabama, uh, and then you've got folks like Joyce Beatty out of Ohio, who's, you know, looked at the landscape and said, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and stay in the House and and continue to be chair of the Congressional Black Caucus and 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 try to keep having an impact uh, there. So, uh, you know, there really is a lot to think about in terms of of what. Black women's political leadership looks like going forward, um, you know, not just uh, coming out of the 2020 election, but, but looking ahead to this cycle and, and even beyond. Mm. I just want to remind our, our viewers that you can um, submit questions um, by um, uh, via the tab on your screens, and we'll try to get to as many of your questions as we can as we move forward. Instead, talk to us a little bit more about um, what's going on in the kind of reporting you're doing in terms of, uh, you know, Jamel just made the point that it's in labor coverage, it's in corporate power coverage, it's what, what are you seeing on the ground and uh, are you like, what are you fighting to get forward in, in your coverage? 
Yeah, I think that we are in a situation where um, there's kind of dual storylines happening. There is both the enactment of the Biden agenda in Washington and how that stands. And then there's the kind of ongoing uh, American political crises that's kind of playing out across the rest of the country. And so, you know, I've really focused on the second part and not the first. And so that looks like uh, going to these places and these communities. You have a Republican Party that's really wrestling with its identity, right, that has been so defined by Donald Trump, continues to be defined by Donald Trump and is making and is, is, is kind of seeing what that looks like in an era where he may or may not run for re-election in 2024, but you have his brand of politics that will certainly live on through the party since then. You have a Democratic Party that had um, its big tent kind of keep together in opposition to Trump, but that ha certainly has a wide diversity of political uh, perspectives, of ideologies, of, of, of identities that are playing out in these states. But I really think that the core of what's happening right now is kind of a stress test of American democracy. You have a uh, kind of rising multicultural tide in certain states uh, that is kind of powering uh, uh, kind of new coalitions. You have a Republican Party that has mobilized against that them, um, the, that tide and has uh, trying to enact uh, regressive voting rights measures in, in several states across the country. And I think we're going to get to a point where it's going to be a kind of gut check on what does this country believe in terms of its basic kind of access to the ballot and access to democracy and just who gets the right for that political power. And so things like the Senate are wrapped up in that question. Things like gerrymandering in the House are wrapped up in that question. And I think that that is really the core uh, uh, of um, what what I feel are the important storylines. We can focus on the kind of political actors of the game, but I think actually the rules of the game are being questioned right now. And that is going to extend uh, uh, past this administration and is frankly even larger than the uh, uh, individual agenda items of this administration. It will govern how we uh, conduct ourselves politically going forward. Mm. And it's so, to, oh yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, can I build on that point? Sure. Um, I think that's a, a phenomenal point. I, and I think part of the job of those of us who cover politics is to impress upon readers that what's being contested here, and let's use an example, let's look at the recent spate of voter restrictions that have been introduced in several state legislatures. You can frame this as, you can choose to frame this as reflecting some sort of sincere worry about voter fraud on part of Republican politicians. You can frame it uh, as you know, reflecting some sincere interest in voter integrity. But I think the, the correct and accurate way of framing it is it's part of a, a larger contest over political equality, whether or not all Americans are um, political equals, whether or not their votes count the same, whether or not we are going to aspire to one person, one vote. I think it's important to impress upon that for readers that these are actually the stakes of these um, these debates, these uh, this the, this legislation, these arguments, uh, and it extends sort of all the way. I mean, all the way down to local government, whether or not um, hyperpartisan gerrymandering is going to kind of basically lock out political the Democratic Party in some states from even winning elections, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's. I think. I think going in that direction requires not so much overturning some idea of ob objectivity, but recognizing that the the point of the free press is the defense of democracy. It's not you know, the, the Constitution does not give does not grant freedom of the press 
just because it's a nice thing to do. It's it's instrumental. Um, and so in covering American politics, I think that makes it incumbent on those of us who do it to kind of communicate those values in a reporting and make it clear when a political party is acting in ways that run contrary to what we collectively understand to be sort of our democratic traditions or democratic values. Uh, and I want to pick up on that, 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 that very important point then of the press. So let's just talk about it. Um, are you, the three of you, seeing um, substantive change in um, how newsrooms, news organizations um, are actually hiring, promoting black journalists, how they're, how they're, um, how, do you see a shift in the, the coverage? Do you, um, even how we define news, how we define news and opinion, do you see things actually happening in American news organizations right now to address those very things? Uh, I, I think, you know, look, I, what I would say about this is that, uh, you know, the national reckoning on race that we saw in America was uh, at its core about an interrogation of institutions, right, institutional systemic racism, and journalism is not immune from that interrogation, right, and so we are in the midst as an industry uh, of, of that process, but very much in the midst, like this is, this is a work in progress uh, that has been in progress, I mean, look, the Kerner Commission report of 1968 told us what we needed to do. Uh, and we can pick up those suggestions at any point and, and implement them in, in our country's newsrooms uh, to, um, you know, to, to get to the kind of um, coverage and the kind of culture uh, that, that many of us, uh, you know, wish we'd had earlier in our careers and are wondering if, if we are going to have uh, in, in the newsrooms as they exist today. And so, you know, um, this has to be, work and, 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 and a conversation that extends beyond a summer, that extends beyond, you know, a, a presidential administration, right? Uh, you know, newsrooms need to keep going. Uh, they need to, um, you know, continue to uh, lay out concrete steps to how they are going to get to um, a new reality uh, and awareness around um, the unfinished business of our democracy, which is the legacy of, of racism in this country and, and the idea that, that race um, impacts every aspect of our society, right? And so, um, you know, while it is certainly a good thing that, that uh, you know, I think the three of us on this screen have more company <laughs> in terms of, of um, um, Black folks uh, in journalism who who are doing this work and who are are leaving behind an honest and accurate record of who and where we are as a country, uh, you know there is a role uh, for our white counterparts to play for sure. Uh, but also until we are more of the uh, decision makers and gatekeepers uh, in this industry, uh, you know I think we still have a, a long way to go in terms of our progress around these issues. Instead, what are you thinking? 
Yeah, you know, I uh, I oscillate between moments of uh, uh, encouragement around the way media is uh, growing and covering race and moments of deep despair. <laughs> and I think that like that is, uh, um, I don't think that that is unique to me. I think that is a feeling that we all share. You know, I think um, the 2016 election was frankly an embarrassment for political coverage. And I think that there, I would say that the last, um, I would say that this cycle, we were better because of that embarrassment. And I think that places had to do a deep introspection about not only how they were covering um, politics in general, but how they were kind of pulse checking the country. And I think that's what elections are really, right? They are, they are, a, they are a check of how people are coming or how society is coming to the political process. And frankly, in four years ago or, or five years ago, that was missed. And I think that what we had was a media ecosystem that did better this time around and not only elevating voices who are more clear eyed about issues of identity, about race, about whiteness and the like, but also uh, just getting out there and kind of getting uh, a better a better sense of where people were, partly because of the misses of four years ago. I do not think that that is a finished work, however. I don't think that that is something that newsrooms have solved uh, and cannot be solved, frankly, with an individual here or there. It has to be a, you know, as we're talking about systemic racism, even in America, has to be a kind of rooting out an, uh, uh, of the issue, even within our own newsrooms. You know, uh, me and Jamel work at the New York Times, which yesterday just put out our uh, kind of report about diversity and inclusion. And I think Very it's good to see. I think it's good to see a, a the company kind of have those stated values, right? I think that uh, it is no. I, I think that it is about following through on those stated values. It's about uh, not only bringing in new voices, but enforcing that values on the voices that have been here for a long time. The voices who have had a lot of power in newsrooms and may have been resistant or bad actors on this front. That's where I think we're gonna see uh, the rubber meet the road on these issues. And you know, history does not give me confidence about that, but it does not mean that we cannot do better uh, going forward. Well, and you talk about pulse checking, and of course that means also we white journalists have to take more than our own pulses. We have to take other people's pulses too. We have to take the pulses of people who are non-white and talk about what's happening with, with them on another whole level. It can't just be on journalists of color to do this, obviously. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I mean, I think there is obviously, uh, I think we are all familiar with the kind of extra role that journalists of color sometimes play in the newsroom to be the second reader, to be the pseudo uh, public editor on certain issues, to, to, to sensitivity read on someone else's stories. And that is a undue burden. That is a weight. That is unpaid labor. Unpaid. That is all, what? Unpaid labor, yes. Yeah, it is certainly unpaid labor. But there's also, I think, a commitment to how black, uh, you know, black journalists, people of color, uh, view the institution. I mean, I, I, I try to tell folks, you know, if I'm doing that, it's because I want this place to be better on these issues, right? It's because I actually am committed to seeing a, a, a workplace and a product, a journalism product that does grow on these fronts, right? And I think that we have to recognize that what uh, kind of black and brown journalists are. are are trying to push the industry on is not in opposition to the values of the profession, but is really calling the profession to really live up to it on all those fronts and calling our institutions to do so also. And so, you know, it's it's really, I think, a value add to the place, not a um, not a, a threat to the journalistic mission. Yeah, and it's central to, to the mission of journalism, right? To leave behind an honest and accurate record of who and where we are as a country. If we're not doing that, uh, you know, around race, then what are we doing? 
you know, that, that is, it, this is not about people's feelings. <laughs> this is about, uh, you know, the reality of, of our democracy. And, and, and so, um, you know, we have to get this right. Um, but, but I would just, yes, for white journalists, um, the idea that whiteness is an identity, I think is something that, that folks are starting to become more aware of and, and that that is an identity that also needs to be interrogated. What does it mean to be a white person in America right now? What does it mean? Uh, you know, you have folks after Charlottesville or maybe even after January 6th saying, whoa, I'm not that kind of white person. This is not who I am. Okay, well, let's, let's unpack that. Let's talk about that. Like that needs to be an ongoing conversation. White uh, identity is also identity politics and it does factor into uh, people's decisions at the ballot box, um, you know, in, into their values, like, like, like uh, white journalists, uh, just as, as, you know, we're going to, you know, the barbershop and, and, and asking people how they feel uh, and to speak to the whole race on, on issues. Uh, you know, we, we uh, white, white journalists can, can, I guess, you know, go to the diner or, or whatever, you know, kind of that journalistic device is to be asking white people about, um, you know, to, to, uh, about these issues and, and how they play into not only their own politics, but into our democracy. That is, that is um, something that is a reporting thread that I don't think has been nearly tapped enough and, and not just from the perspective that, oh, we need to understand, you know, we need to understand and empathize with folks. Well, no, like, we, like, like we need to talk about what this means for our politics that, 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 uh, and, and not in the extreme examples of just, you know, the kind of folks that storm the Capitol. I, I, I've, I have really been encouraged by a lot of the reporting that talks about how normal some of these folks are, that these are folks, friends and neighbors and coworkers and, and, you know, regular Americans and not just kind of the extreme examples of racism that, that, that I think folks are too uh, willing to kind of silo and otherize uh, is not really part of our country, not, not, not part of, of who, who we are and who we know uh, that we have been since uh, the country's founding. You know, I'm going to ask you a question related to that, and I'll get one of you to answer. This is um, from Sri uh, Paradkar, um, in, that speaks to what you're saying. We touched on it a bit, but she, she writes, in some ways, Trump made it easier to talk about white supremacy by bringing the overt form of it out in the open. With Biden, the status quo represents, however, a different kind of white supremacy, a structural one. My worry is that non-Trump will now be equated to non-racist, and while overt white supremacists will not suddenly disappear, how do journalists keep up the pressure, how should they, on the more covert forms of white supremacy when the headlines around them are not as outrageous or clickable? Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I, just to, I'll answer that, and just sort of to build off of what Aaron um, was saying, if we, if you, if, if we, if we, posit and, and begin with the idea that white identity, whiteness is an identity worth interrogating that needs to be interrogated and that even people can't necessarily, even if individual people can't necessarily express their motivations in terms of their whiteness, it's clear just from what we know about um, American society from you know, research, et cetera, et cetera, that whiteness does shape how white people understand themselves in relation to the country in relation to other people. So sort of taking that as a given, I mean, I think that's, you can, there are examples of how you do this kind of reporting um, that, that may not necessarily be in the political context, but are, can be, lessons can be drawn from it. So when, I, when, I, when, I, when I'm thinking about right now is education reporting. 
uh, especially education reporting that deals with, you know, questions of equity and segregation, et cetera. Some of the very best education reporting very much captures the extent to which, say, white middle-class families understand what makes a good school or what makes a good environment as tied up in race and communicates that to readers and helps readers see how race is shaping evaluations of what constitutes a good education or what constitutes a good school and how it shaped conflicts over those things. You can see something similar in reporting over housing and land use, which is intimately tied to race in this country. Um, the best reporting on housing and land use communicates to readers that underlying so many disputes are questions of who does what who does neighborhood belong to um uh do 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 white homeowners for example connect their well-being to a, to segregation in ways that are uninterrogated by them but are clear with investigation and I, I think that those kinds of approaches can be used by political journalists to to as as we as we you know examine all sorts of voters on the left and right um asking and, and, and utilizing again history and sociology and social science oh yeah. you froze there you go you know that it's almost as if you're channeling the next question in our list here from one of our um viewers it's romaine smith fullerton um asking who teaches journalism any pointers on how to reframe journalism education jamel uh, you're talking about uh, the wider education. What about journalistic education? Well, listen, I, I, is, I although it is important for white reporters to do this work. I, oh, there you go. Um, sorry, if the, I, my internet just got unstable, so I apologize if I just talked over anyone. Um, no, it's important for white reporters to do this work, but I would also say that white reporters should also talk to black people and talk to um, uh, other people of color. Like, I, I don't think I don't think white reporters should silo themselves off. Um, and I think that the kinds of uh, training and education that it might take to be a good reporter in different environments um, contributes to just being a good reporter in general. Same, you know, I'm not a, a straightforward political reporter. I'm, you know, more of an analyst opinion writer type, but even, even there I do do reporting and I do take it upon myself to kind of uh, not just, you know, I don't just stick to, stereotypically black issues, right? Sort of, I consider that bringing a, a racial a race, a racial analysis to all sorts of issues, but also um, uh, immersing myself in other disciplines and, and bringing that to bear on racial analysis. So I think, I think everything has to be kind of tied up in each other, right? It can't just, there can't really be silos here. Um, and, and all of us have to really uh, engage in all kinds of work here. Yeah, I, I, I think Jamel, uh, Jamel is exactly right. All of this is bound up together. All of it is interconnected. And I think that, you know, for journalism education, a working knowledge of the history of this country uh, to provide the context that allows you to talk about most of these issues, if not all of them, on a continuum uh, is very important. None of these things are happening in isolation. None of these things are necessarily individual incidents uh, that are happening, particularly as it, as it pertains uh, to race. And so, you know, I'm somebody who, before I covered uh, politics full-time, really was was covering race full-time. And, and the intersection of politics and race um, is something that is going to be with us. I mean, we were not post-racial after 
you know, uh, Barack Obama's election. And, 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 and while we may be post-Trump in terms of him being out of office, Trumpism uh, is, is still uh, very much um, a phenomenon uh, that is with us and, and that needs to continue uh, there's a need. There's a need to continue to cover, to cover what that what that means, uh, because it it was something that preceded uh, the former president and something that that is here uh, now that he has passed from the scene. So, um, you know, I honestly feel like my um, experience covering race for as long as I did better prepared me to cover politics. And and there are too many of our white counterparts who may know how to cover politics, but really don't know how to cover race at all. And so, uh, you know, for um, I think anybody who is is considering uh, entering into this profession uh, to not have a working knowledge of the history of race in this country uh, and, and how it relates to uh, our society in general, but particularly to our politics is, is I think, foundational. Yeah, I... Um... I majored in journalism, and I really believe that none of that training made me an interest. Made me no. a decent journalist. I actually think that most of most of my journalism profession has been unlearning my collegiate journalism. What, what, would, you major, what would you major in if, if if you had to do whatever? Oh, I would do like a history. I would do something yes. like a specific practice, right? I would totally not do the journal. I would not do journal. I was a journalism poli sci major, and basically, I think that the 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 schooling kind of they made a kind they made a they made a intention out of being soulless about, and they made a they made a a kind of high. Um, it was a moral high ground to really believe in nothing, right? And I think that like that is an ill preparation for this moment, and. That is ill preparation to cover race, to cover politics. And basically, I think they trained a generation of journalists that does not know, that thinks that they should believe in nothing, frankly. And I think that um, that serves no one, including the public. And I think that um, I um, really, I, you know, I left college without even thinking I wanted to be a journalist, partly because of that education. But one thing I loved about newsrooms was that it did not actually reflect the journalism education that I had, right? When I was an intern at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel covering education, when I got an internship at the Boston Globe, I found people who really, the best journalists I met really cared about things and were kind of using that as, uh, journalism was a tool to kind of get that out there and to hold folks accountable about real values. And that is where I actually found uh, a profession that could work for me rather than uh, the, the kind of education that I had. So frankly, I'm, I, you know, I say this to say that like, I um, think that a lot of the way that we teach people to be journalists is broken, frankly. And I think that it is a, it is an exercise in, uh, uh, you know, two, both sidesism and whack views of objectivity and all of this stuff. And, and frankly, like the, the actual practice of reporting isn't to me the biggest thing that you had to grow in. You had to meet new people. You had to learn the history of this country. You had to know about issues. And that actually informed how you were able to connect with wide different groups of people. And I think that like actually breaking from that education model is going to be something that uh, if we want to create people, one, if we want to bring new people into the profession, 
that's going to be something we need to break from. And also, if I think if we want a generation of journalists who are prepared to take on this kind of core democracy questions, core racial questions, like the things that are actually animating politics right now, you cannot do so with the kind of views of uh, uh, kind of outdated retrograde things that I feel like journalism education, at least in my experience, encouraged. Absolutely. And bringing and bringing your lived experience to this work as an asset and not a liability, because too often, uh, especially for, for journalists of color, for women, for other marginalized folks, uh, you know, being told to kind of leave all of that at the yeah. door. Uh, no, I, you know, like like who we are and, and what has shaped us uh, makes for better journalism. It, it gives us a lens that allows us to see stories that other people don't see. And that is that is what can set you apart as a journalist. It is not what what um, you should be suppressing in this work. You know, everything you're saying applies to Canadian journalism as well. Everything. Um, Jamel, do you want to uh, uh, do you want to add to what they're saying? I mean, I I don't have anything particularly more to add beyond what's already been said. I, I guess I would second this uh, idea that kind of formal journalism training in an academic setting probably isn't that critical to being a good journalist. I do not have any formal journalism training. I kind of got a job at a magazine out of college and sort of learned, you know, what journalism skills I have while just doing the job. But the thing I brought to the job was I, my, you know, my academic training is in um, philosophy and political science. And so, uh, you know, I, I, the skills from those disciplines, um, deep research, uh, sort of a looking for, especially in the political science, have sort of like understanding um, stuff from a quantitative angle, uh, 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 kind of valuing the importance of uh, uh, of context. Um, that's all been very helpful in in my kind of recent career of the last five years, where I've really kind of taken really kind of delved into history. Um, I've, I think my, I think my work has been vastly improved by just engaging seriously with academic history, talking to historians and kind of like training myself in that mode. And I, you know, I, I think about other area, other, other types of journalism, um, other types of policy journalism, no one would expect um, to go back to housing and land use. No one would expect, say, a, a housing and land use reporter in Baltimore to not have pretty intimate knowledge of the policies and patterns and structures that produce outcomes in Baltimore, right? No one would expect an education reporter in, in New York to have an intimate knowledge of not just how the education system actually operates, but what produce the education system? What is the history of that education system? But for some reason in political journalism, you can kind of get away with not having that deep of a knowledge of the the social forces and structures that produce our politics. People you know, know lots of trivia, certainly. There are plenty of people who can tell you who won this election when. Um, but, you know, if you well, ask in, you the can... con in, the con in the context of Trump, right, if you ask your if you ask yourself a question like, why was it that white voters in white working class voters in Ohio were hugely enthusiastic for Trump during his 2016 campaign, but their black neighbors, right, who may belong to the same unions, work in the same factories, live just across the, the tracks, um, were much more skeptical and hostile to Trump. Uh, 
that's a question that I very much recall in 2016 wasn't asked very much. And that relies on something more than kind of a surface level knowledge of elections. And it's knowledge that people should have, right? It, it, you, you will, you, you'll have trouble understanding what is happening if you don't have that kind of knowledge. I personally think that like my sense of Trump in 2016 was better helped by reading lots of urban history, right? Like reading about cities um, like Chicago and Detroit uh, and Baltimore uh, and Philadelphia, cities whose racial politics kind of like prefigure the kind of politics Trump has than by any of the political history I do. Like I was, I much was, was, I could more quickly attach Trump to like a Frank Rizzo than anything else. And that, that's, I I feel like bringing that kind of knowledge to bear on political journalism is going to be critical going forward. Uh, I have another question here um, from Susan Reisler. It is to you, Jamel, but um, I'm, yeah, I think any one of you, whoever wants to answer this, she says, recognizing that you work for the New York Times, are you comfortable with how the rank and file, in quotations, has been instrumental in the departure of journalists who may have used inappropriate language, but to the public at least have not been shown to be out and out racists? Is it time to create a fair hearing for these people, judge them by their behavior over time and not one incident? I mean, I, you know, I work, to, to be clear, I work in New York Times opinion. So stuff that happens in the newsroom, I'm not entirely certain. <laughs> I, I, I was like, this, this is going to sound like a cop-out, but I think it, it has to be emphasized as sort of like, the New York Times is a very large organization, and I kind of know what happens in my kind of sector of things, but not the entire company. Having said that, I'm going to channel uh, a friend of mine who commented on a kind of similar controversy at his workplace, which is to say that it is a very small ask of black journalists, for, from black journalists to say, please do not use kind of the most uh, offensive racial slur in the English language in our presence, um, or just period. It's uh, it's everyone knows what you're talking about if you say the N word, right? No, there's no, there's no mystery here, and so I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not like, I'm not, un, I'm sympathetic to 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 the idea of someone needing to be judged on the whole of their career, but I am unsympathetic to the idea that it's somehow an overreaction to say, you know, we're going to uh, discipline you for using that word or mentioning that word or, or whatever, if you want to get into the use mentioned distinction. I think it's a, again, it's a very small ask from black journalists of their white colleagues to kind of just like leave that one alone. And if their white colleagues are not willing to do that, then I do think that suggests uh, more serious problems because it becomes a matter, a basic matter of respect and consideration for colleagues. I know, I know, I know Aaron wanted to say yeah. something. Go ahead. No, no I just, just that I also appreciated our friend saying that uh, in public as well. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm kind of hurt that the rank and file New York Times newsroom questions didn't come. <laughs> no, uh, I feel like, uh, uh, you know, like I, sometimes, you know, the basis of that question, you know, I, I, I think that we need to interrogate the assumptions in it, right? Do, you, do we think that Black journalists don't understand context? Do we think Black journalists don't understand language or the right for free speech or these other things? Do, do you think that, like, you, we, you know, folks are trying to get someone fired over, like, reading Huck Finn out loud, you know? Like, do you, like, like I'm saying, like, it, you know, and I think that um, that is not the core of really what 
um, uh, I can say as someone who was in, who was intimately involved in those efforts, that's not the core for what folks were asking. They're not the core to what leadership was talking about or the core of the situation. I think it is a misrepresentation of both um, uh, uh, what, you know, that the kind of context of that was and the specifics to how that individual left the building. I think that what is happening, though, is that there is a larger debate about power and language about um, and about who gets a voice in newsrooms and in the country at large that is happening uh, and playing out in the New York Times and is playing else playing out elsewhere. And I think that that, frankly, is something that isn't um, necessarily about a specific word or, or, or a specific individual, but it's about who gets voice in institutions. And um, I think that I think that um, we have for a long time, both in the New York Times and elsewhere, been used to a specific uh, cadre of people having power. And what I think is happening now increasingly is those uh, 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 power, you know, those power plays are being played by multiple sects of people. And, uh, and I think that um, that's a challenge. And that's a challenge for institutions to deal with. But I don't think it's an unwelcome challenge. It is a consequence of bringing in new folks. There's a consequence of diversity. It is a consequence of increased power and visibility from folks who haven't been in those rooms before, right? Diversity in rooms doesn't is going to bring tension if those if those people bringing broad in have uh, the ability to voice and speak their perspective, right? Right. The reason the room all agreed is because the room was collected on the same groups of folks, right? Like there will be tension in those things. And so I don't think we should run from that. I don't think we should act like those, uh, um, uh, you know, it's going to be clean. It's going to be messy. But um, I think that that is a welcome thing that we should encourage if our stated values as an institution and as a society are in growing the populations of folks who have power here. But, you know, I want to reemphasize that what was the specifics of that question are not true to that incident. Um, uh, we're, I, I, just, just yes, to, yes, go ahead. Just to just put a, put a, a final point on what Esther said. I, I, so much of these controversies are controversies about the consequences of integration, right? Of serious integration, not just sprinkling diversity, but actually integrating institutions and actually uh, redistributing power within them. And I think, I mean, to me, what's been so clarifying about the debate over the, the particular word is that it puts that in the sharp relief, right? Sort of a belief that what we're having here are debate integration. Um, Jamal, you cut out, but I, I, are you finished with, did you want to say some more? Uh, yes, I'm, no, I'm, I'm, I, I finished. If I cut out, just ignore me now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, the, thank you. We're going to have to end it there. Um, really, thank you, all three of you, for, for sharing your thoughts on all of this. It's really important to hear your voices, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. And thank you, everyone, for your questions. We had even more, but we got those in. Um, so, uh, Aaron, Ested, and Jamel, Thank you again, um, and thank you everyone for joining us. We're going to wrap it up here. Um, next week, we'll hear from Alan Russbridger. He joins me to discuss his new book, News and How to Use It, What to Believe in a Fake News World. He is, of course, the chair of the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at Oxford University. He's the former longtime editor-in-chief of The Guardian, and his book is a dictionary-style exploration on news, and it sheds some light on how we got to the place 
where we're at right now, where there are so many questions that need some answering in news and news coverage and how we move forward. On May 13th, we'll hear from David Remnick, editor of The New Yorker. He'll share stories about working with top journalists and the challenges of running a magazine with a focus on long-form journalism and personal essays. We hope you can join us for those conversations as well. For updates on all events, uh, follow the Canadian Journalism Foundation, the CJF. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram. Visit the website to sign up for the newsletter. I'm Anna Maria Tremonti. Thanks everyone for watching. Take care. Stay safe, everyone. Thanks so much. Thank you so much.